Gordon Atkinson says, let me guess, you'd like to find a church. You are looking for a cool church with authentic Christians who aren't judgmental yet have convictions. They're hip and classic in just the right way. You want a church where people forgive each other, love children, and worship in meaningful ways. You want a church with a swingin' preacher. I didn't write this. Swingin'. Or five of them, swingin' preachers, who know how to tell a great story, make the Bible come alive, preachers, pastors who know how to play. You want a church that isn't too liberal or conservative, but knows how to work outside of those limited categories. A church where the hunger for truth is honored, where people can disagree, still love each other, and share a plate of tacos. A church where people are committed to the Christ life, and it shows in the fabulous and creative ways they love one another and love the world. Is this the kind of church you want, he asks. He suggests that we go to the telephone book, to the yellow pages, to the section marked churches, and that we take the pages there and tear them out and tear them up. He says, weep if you must, for a church like what you want doesn't exist. It's an interesting backdrop on which to read now our Bible teaching this morning from John chapter 6. What it is we're looking for doesn't exist. John chapter 6, beginning with verse 35, Jesus has a crowd with him, as is often the case, conversation unfolds to a group of people looking for something, beginning with verse 35. Then Jesus declared to the people, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me will never go hungry, and he or she who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. The Bible describes now a grumbling crowd, a crowd sort of protesting, and I suspect it's because we have these very real, tangible, concrete words like bread and drink and chew and swallow and live, and they're being asked to think of these words they know so well and have experienced so well in a different way. Bread coming out of heaven. Everyone knows bread comes off the fire or out of the oven. Jesus, we know you. You forget we knew your mama, Mary, your father, Joseph. You came out of Nazareth. What do you mean? Bread coming down out of heaven. They're confused by the teaching, and instead of stopping, Jesus presses the crowd further. He tells them, stop grumbling. No one comes to me except by the Father. Verse 47, I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert and they died. But here is the bread that comes from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, they will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world 
Now the Bible tells us there's more grumbling, actually arguing, and it's between the people themselves. What does he mean? How do you eat his flesh? Jesus continues, verse 53. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in that last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. He who feeds on this bread will live forever. Now listen for the response of the crowd in verse 60. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that the disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus says, Does this offend you? Good translation, does this scandalize you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are of the Spirit, they are of life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. And finally, verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back, no longer followed him. Many left, the Bible said, because the teaching is too difficult, Bread and blood and body and eat and chew and swallow. Is it really that the teaching is too difficult that we can't understand it? Is this why many turn back? For Jesus seems to push, no, this flesh is really food and this drink is really my blood. Is it just too much? The last, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back for some who've been following Jesus or the first paragraph for others who have just come to meet this man and he's talking about literally gnawing on his flesh. Is this scandalous? They turn away. Uh, we, re we studied in church a couple of weeks ago, those who leave that not everyone chooses to stay. We talked about what it is to be lever-sensitive, to watch for the leaving ones, to make contact with them, to make this part of our ministry here. But there's a, another group in this passage. Besides those who leave, Jesus turns to the other group, the second group, verse 67. You, he says to the second group, you do not want to leave too, do you? Addressing the 12 disciples. Do you want to go? Would you like to follow them? Is this too difficult for you? These are the first students of Jesus, and we know because of the way the gospel ends, they're also his last students. They don't leave. They stay. My brother many times attempted running away when he was a child. His success rate is zero. I never saw him leave the house, however, even with a suitcase in his hand. And for those of you attempting to run away and, and be convincing, you should at least pack a bag. One time in particular, I remember going outside where there's 10 acres, turning the corner around the back of the house and the dog, the dog house, and here is my little brother in a blue striped t-shirt with his Sears and Robux blue jeans on and crew cut, and he's glued up against the side of the house because he's run away from home not going anywhere. Here are the 12 disciples sort of glued at the side of Jesus. He says to them, do you want to go too? 
Simon Peter, of all, responds to Jesus' question. Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Where are we going to go? To whom? To what? To what person? To what location? To what specific idea? To what unique experience? All of that is meant, by the way, in the one word, to whom, what, where shall we go? What else is there for us to experience? Now, I believe that this response from the disciples can be measured on a continuum, a commitment continuum, we'll call it. On one extreme, to who else shall I go, could mean, boy, I don't know, what are my options? Don't know that I have a lot of options. This might be the best one right now, so I guess I'll stay. Maybe a little more commitment in the middle would say, I have enough evidence. I'll take my chances with this Jesus. And a little more commitment may say, you are the Holy One of God. You have the words of life. Which, by the way, I'm not even sure the disciples would know what those words mean. Maybe it's an exercise of convincing yourself to believe what you're saying. Nevertheless, the response of Simon Peter is not opting out. It's not a resignation. Oh, well, I have nowhere else to go. It is indeed a faith commitment. It's a confession. Lord, where else will I go? To whom will I go? It is so much a statement of faith that many Lutheran churches, before they open their Bibles and do their gospel reading for the day, they stand together and sing Peter's words. To whom shall we go? You only have the words of life. Lessons to be learned from Peter's response to Jesus. Maybe one lesson is that those who stay are not necessarily more intelligent than those who go. Those who stay, not, not necessarily, is it that we have things understood. We have exceptional commitment. For all we have to do is read the rest of the gospel story, and we see that even this group that stays struggles. They stay and they struggle with their commitment. Oftentimes, those of us who stay begin to feel a bit superior. The good ones. The elder brother syndrome sets in. But it is true that oftentimes we are just the frightened ones. We are just the, perhaps, unmotivated ones or uncritical ones. And you would agree it's easy to hide out in church, just as easy to hide here as to walk away from this gathering. When we stay, it isn't because we necessarily have things all figured out. And Peter confesses this in his statement. The end of last week, I sent an email to many of the church members and just asked for a response to the question, why stay? Why do you stay? And I'll share many of those responses at the end of the sermon. I have decided to stop being surprised by your honesty, <laughs> church. <laughs> we ask for it and you give it. Like the one email that says, why do I stay? Because my wife told me to. Signed by Kirby Oberg. <laughs> or this one by one of our church friends here. Why do I stay? I'm a fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist. If I leave, I would lose my job. I would lose my friends. I would lose, actually, my family life would become very complex. And face it, I can't dance. I can't cut meat in a polite manner. I don't drink, 
I don't know dinosaurs or geological epics. I actually have a preference between Linkettes and Big Franks. I have come to understand I am a freak outside of Adventism. It's helpful to admit that sometimes those of us stay, stay not because we have this all figured out. We stay oftentimes confused and perplexed, just committed. A second lesson from Peter's affirmation, staying can be just as difficult as leaving. And this is the scandal of faith. That is, Jesus never promises anything easy about this commitment should you choose to stay. And I believe this when Peter says, to whom else shall I go? He's beginning to understand the teaching that's so confusing to the crowd. Where the crowd is wrestling with eat my flesh and drink my blood. And I believe Peter's begin to understand that Jesus is addressing human hunger. Something everyone understands. Human, humans hunger and we thirst and we chase after that which will satisfy us. The story with Jesus in John, in John chapter 6 begins earlier with a, a feeding of 5,000. Face it, the crowd came after him because they were hungry and they wanted free fish and free bread and maybe a new free political leader. And I wonder if Peter is starting to understand the great lesson Jesus teaches. You humans hunger and you desire and you chase after something that satisfies It's the way you're wired. I've been watching with interest the story as the weeks got closer to yesterday and the release of the new iPhone from Apple. Who has one? We were looking for one earlier this week, Pastor Dan and I, so I could hold one up, you know? And then I got to thinking, how crazy is that? If you stood in line all week, you're not going to let me hold it when it's 12 hours old. The new release of, of, you know, the most amazing product now available. Supposedly three million of these will be sold in the next few weeks by the Apple Corporation. And it's a big deal if you're looking for one gadget that can do everything together, right? A phone, web browser, play your music, watch your videos. Sixty articles a day have saturated the media since January. About 60 articles per day hyping this new product. Yesterday, a computer science professor from Harvard University was asked, can this product measure up? And he said, look, not even God could invent a product to measure up to what has been marketed to humans. We know, we grab after, we chase after, we have a thirst for all sorts of things in this world. It is this that Jesus is addressing in this difficult teaching, and I believe Peter is beginning to understand Human hunger will never be satisfied by human results. Humans can chase after the rest of their life and they'll still be hungry because human hunger is driven by and out of human brokenness and a need to satisfy ourselves. That is what flesh below means. There's flesh from here and then there's flesh of the spirit. There's flesh driven by human brokenness and there's flesh driven by the agenda of God. And Jesus is saying, you have a choice which you will consume, the flesh of this world or the flesh of another world. And Peter, I believe, is beginning to understand, ah, The Jesus kingdom, the Jesus way, the person of Jesus, the story of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the experience of Jesus, this is the salvation story beginning to make sense. And I believe Peter wants this to be his story too. 
So here we are 2,000 years later, the people of God, the church of God, falling in this tradition, the people to whom the message has been given, those responsible to communicate God's grace in the world. The critique in the last decade is really that the church isn't so effective anymore at doing what it's been called to do, that the church has fallen short, that in fact the world, in the world all we have to do is look at the new community experiment going on, which is a few years old. That is people chasing us after all sorts of experiences in fellowship and community, joining groups of all kinds just to be with other people, which was one of the primary purposes of the church of God. And that because we have failed at this, people go chasing other places. This is a critique of our church. Yet we forget, and we can be easily reminded just by looking at the communion table this morning, there is a unique difference between this gathering and any other gathering in the world. The church, the people of God, is the only group that gather around the goodness of God. We are the only people who say we exist because of the grace of God. We exist because we're being redeemed by God. We exist because there's a world who needs to know the same thing. It's what makes us uniquely church and this unique community that you can't experience anywhere else. Try as we may. Now, in the world, when we join other circles of friendships and fellowships, we usually joined with a fairly relaxed maxim that says, come, come, whenever you can. Stay as long as you can. If it gets to be too much in your life, take a break. If it's not, you know, suiting your need, try something else. But, you know, whatever works for you. That's the maxim in the world. The maxim of the church group is so different. Driven by the words of Jesus, the church says, oh yes, come as you are, but stay. Stay even when it doesn't make sense. Stay even when you experience some damage because you get the option to work from within. Stay when there's oppression because you get to transform it. Stay when it's not meaningful because you have the gifts to change it. Stay when it gets uncomfortable because then you're probably on to something. Stay, stay is the invitation that comes from Jesus. The church in every age has been made capable because of the power the Holy Spirit gives us. The question is always for us, are we willing to be that agency in the world? The church with hands full of God's goodness, with solutions for a broken world. My daughter, when we vacationed last week, gave me one of her magazines to read, a 200-page magazine, one that I don't normally get a chance to look at. She thought I'd be interested in it, the cover title, the whole issue is devoted to Africa, the continent of Africa. These advocacy groups and these power groups that are now forming to change the face of Africa, the experience of these 53 countries, to wipe out economic um, disaster and war and disease and malnutrition and famine, to make it impossible that 10,000 children could die from mosquitoes in certain villages every year. And I, I began to flip the pages of her journal. I had the guest editor, Bono, from, you know, the punk rock band. And I turn pages and I read more stories, and stories encouraging the wealthiest nations in the world to erase the debt of the poorest nations in the world. 
I turned the pages, I turned the pages, and I said, this should be the church. This should be the church. This is the work of the church. This is why the church is in the world. And Elisa finally said to me, Mom, you say that a lot. This is what the church is for. She's right. I say it a lot. Do I do it? If we're going to be the people who stay, I'd like to be the people who stay with an eager commitment to bring God's goodness to the world. I'd like to stay and be part of the people who, who don't fall under the critique of the world that says you've lost your vision, you've lost your identity, you've lost your purpose. Just as has happened in past, the church of today is just impotent to be helpful in the world. I'd like to stay with passion and conviction and say, no, no, we are willing to let the power of the Spirit take us into the world. If we're going to stay, let's stay for a real reason. So I ask you this question in the email this week, why do you stay? And I'm so touched by the responses that you send. Over 50 emails came in and the staff shared some of them together. I went to my bookshelf and I have only a small library compared to so many and I pulled in the last 10 years all the books that I've read or purchased on the topic of the church all those things I'm to absorb that teach me about the mission and the function and the identity and the uniqueness of what it is to be the body of Christ. And I stacked them up on the floor until there was a tall stack of information on the church. But you, friends, can say it as powerfully, as clear, as simple, as theologically correct, as anything I've ever read. Let me share with you just some of the brief excerpts that you sent into me when I asked you, why do we stay? We stay to rest. We stay to understand what God has done, to be reminded of what is important. We stay to search scripture for real meaning. We stay for habit. We stay because there's acceptance. Love is available here. We stay to have an example of kingdom because I belong. To experience Sabbath. I don't know why I stay. We stay to, for fear over the future, for fear over what happens if we leave. We stay to be spiritually fed. This church is my family, like it or not. You're stuck, one wrote. We stay because of the precious heritage in church to be sheltered from the world's attacks. We stay because of biblically sound beliefs. We stay to shake hands and exchange hugs. I cannot exist apart from community. I stay because church fits me. I stay to learn from others. I stay this is a safe place for my family to grow, to see God's character come alive. I stay for intellectual Stimulation. I stay to associate with like-minded travelers. There is a message and mission at church. I see God working. I see Satan trying to destroy, which means something must be happening. I stay because this is where I find Jesus. These are your answers. And behind every answer and behind every email, even though we asked for something short, most all of them came with a long story. Behind every answer is someone's story that usually starts out, when I was a child, my parents, 
And out of that grows this experience of why we're in church today above and beyond any other response written was this one, however. Over and over, almost every email included something along the lines of, I stay because of community, because of fellowship, because of people. I stay because of friends. I stay because of family. This is what it is to be the people of God. Theologically sound from the beginning of the Bible till the end, a group committed to something. When I read your responses, it makes me want to stay even more. It makes me eager to be part of a group of people for whom church matters this much. Not perfect, not superior, not all organized, not everything figured out, but deeply committed to searching together for more and more of the goodness of God and sharing it in our world. That's church. What an inspiration to read. So if we're going to stay, let's really stay. Amen. We commemorate our experience today with words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also pass on to you, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And when he had given thanks... He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, and I would add resurrection, until he comes. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father, at uh, times like this, where we intentionally take bread and juice and we hold them in our hands, uh, Lord, we're very aware of our inadequacy. We're very aware of our brokenness. We're broken people, and we live in a broken world. And yet, Jesus, we hear your call to us, pleading with us to do this very thing. Because in doing this, God, we accept your forgiveness. We accept your grace and your mercy and your love. And so this morning, we do this again. We do this with profound gratitude, God. We do this with profound expectation mm. of what you will do in us and through us. We thank, thank you. Thank you, God, also for the cup which we hold. We confess with Peter and the rest of the disciples to whom else, to what else, where we would go. This is more than sufficient, even though we don't understand completely. 
for your grace and your mercy symbolized here, we give thanks. For the expectation that we'll take this out into the world, we accept responsibility. Thank you for the deep meaning this brings us and the deep potential to enact grace in the world. For your love, God, in the name of Jesus, I say thank you. Amen. So take, eat. This is the body of Christ broken for you. And the same with the cup. This is the blood of Jesus Christ spilled for you. Take and drink. And so now go in peace and go and share.